As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. PJ North. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, and sportsman drag racing. I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, Big Jed, Jared Pennington. Jed is in Alabama. I am in the southern tip of Illinois. What is shaking today, Big Jed? Oh, Luke, you know, same old, same old. It's, uh, it's 76 and sunny here Ooh. in the Birmingham area today. Really starting to feel like racing season. You know, I'm getting pretty excited. Going to go test this weekend and get ready to get the season kicked off and running. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's starting to feel really good. Starting to feel like springtime around here. I was in Bell Rose, Louisiana over the weekend, Big Jed. It was it was beyond warm. It was muggy. It was sticky. It was, it was summertime race weather. I was, I was, I enjoyed it. I'm not complaining, but I don't know that I was completely prepared for that. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this time of year, you really don't know what you'll get, especially down this way. You could get, you know, 58 and windy, or you could get 78 and sticky or 82 and sticky. So sound like you guys, uh, got some of that rain it was releasing up out of the ground and causing some of that humidity down there I, I heard it was heard it was a little sticky it was a little sticky it's a little swampy i was parked way out back with the gators 
So it was it was sticky, it was buggy, but man, it was fun. It was good to get back to the racetrack. Uh, welcome to those of you watching along live. Obviously, welcome as well if you're consuming tonight today's podcast in a more traditional way. Uh, via your podcast app on your phone a little bit later in the week. If you are interested in joining us live, we're going to try to uh, to make better habit of this. I think our schedules are a little bit more conducive now. We're going to do our best to be here every Tuesday evening, six o'clock central time, uh, recording the show live. And then obviously it'll hit a couple of days later on the podcast feed. Big Jed, we've got a lot to uh, to cover today. We had a busy week. Um, the last time that we talked, which was just a week ago, just one of the 46, 46 NHRA Lucas Oil Series events on the 2022 schedule was in the books. Just one. Today, as we meet, four are now behind us. There was three over the weekend. So I guess we're at the 10% mark of the season. Still got a long ways to go, right? Sorry, 2023 goof up there. Still a long ways to go, but a lot to recap from a busy weekend on the NHRA Tour. We'll get into that, but first, Big Jed, I think it's only fitting to begin with the, the passing of one Dallas Jones. Dallas Jones passed away Saturday. He was 82 years old. Dallas, longtime owner at uh, Beach Bend Raceway. And it's funny, Jed, because Dallas Jones, he didn't build Beach Bend. I was actually doing some research on this. It was really wild or entertaining right that facility in some form has been in the entertainment business of some fashion since the 1800s so dallas didn't build it dallas started out racing at beach bend and neighboring facilities in kentucky in the 60s 1970s in 1974 he got the opportunity to lease the racetrack that is still in operation in Hardensburg. He ran that for one season. A year later, he leased the racetrack that is also still in operation in Owensboro. He and his family ran that from 1975 to 1987. Towards the end of that stint is when Dallas got the opportunity to purchase Beach Bend Raceway Park, took ownership of the drag strip, 1984, promptly retired from his job at a wholesale grocery company. He was in his early 40s at the time, just for perspective, right? Go full-time into racetrack promotion. And um, a couple of years later in 19, 1987, they, he and his family actually purchased the adjacent amusement park. So they own the whole Beach Bend facility that we've been become accustomed to today. A couple of years after that, he partnered with his daughter, Charlotte, her husband, Rick, Gonzalez to purchase Music City Raceway, 1989. And basically at that point, Jed established what in the years since, I think has essentially continued to be, for lack of a better word, a, a monopoly on drag racing in that region, right? Between Music City and Bowling Green, like they've, they've kind of had that under wraps. I don't know. Yeah, hence the, the Tim Tuck name. Right. Luke, yeah, that's obviously. where that came from. A hundred percent. I don't know if you've got much personal history with, with Dallas Jones. I'll just share. That dude was one of my favorite people. Like that's a pretty broad statement, but it's a really cool man. Like I made, I made my first trip to Beach Bend Jet. I believe the year was 1999. Uh, I was 18 years old. My father and I went for a, a Tentuck event, March of 99, I believe. And almost immediately, once we got there, Dallas spotted us, right? Me and my father and made his way over. Like, 
I think he made tradition years prior and certainly years since. Like it, I don't, I don't feel like anyone came into that facility and didn't get at some point greeted by Dallas Jones, right? And that's just what he did. Like he just made people feel welcome, seemingly everyone feel welcome. And as the years went on, he always made me feel like we were close, like I was special, like I, I mattered somehow. And I know he made it feel like that was just me. That was just our relationship, but I know it wasn't. I know he did that with so many racers, right? And our conversations, they weren't always long. They weren't always super in-depth, but he was always so present, right? He always took the time. He always made me feel like I was the most important person that he would speak to that day. Like in that way, I feel like that's something that we said about Kyle Cycle. Like that's reminiscent when 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 we were talking about Kyle and the impact that he'd had on so many of us. Now, Dallas Jones and Kyle Cycle, different ends of the personality spectrum. But in fairness to Dallas, like I don't I don't know anybody that I would classify as like a similar personality to Kyle Cycle. Like they were both very much one of one in their in their own unique way. And at least in the, the, the forum in which I got to view Dallas Jones, which was by and large as the man at Beach Bend, there was no doubt ever who was running the show, right? Like he just had that aura about him, this control over the whole thing. I think what sticks out most in my mind, Jed, it was probably... That'd be about five years ago. I uh, some a, a friend of mine by the name of James Warden out in California basically contracted me to to oversee the uh, the assembly of three new race cars, and we got all this done and, and orchestrated. A, we went to Tentuck at at the time. I think it was the fall Tentuck that year, and and orchestrated a a test day. I honestly don't remember if it was a a one single day or two days immediately following Tentuck. So we're there the Monday after. And it was literally, you know, we had our, whatever, how many, however many cars were testing. There was one track employee, a, a starter in Dallas in his late seventies, Jed. And that dude did everything from sweeping the water box to prepping the track, to riding the tractor, to running the computer. He did it all. And it wasn't something like Dallas was really good at delegating, putting the right people in the right places. That's not like he didn't have to wear every hat every week, but he knew how to do all of it. Like he was super hands-on for the entire time that he was there. And if you just, if you'd ever been around, I think to some extent, if you ever raced at Beach Bend, Jed, there was this just no nonsense feel from Dallas, right? Like he had a, persona about him that was never unwelcoming but i just i don't know about you you just you just knew like not to not to mess around like not to cross that guy right like it just it just had this sense of like that's not the guy right and ultimately when we step back from it i feel like it's fair to say that dallas jones was the driving force behind not only one of the most historic one of the most iconic facilities in sportsman racing but like more specific to our world, sportsman drag racing, big dollar bracket racing, I think it's fair to say that Dallas Jones has been the driving force behind one of what's become one of the most prolific regions of sportsman drag racing competition in the country for the last several decades. I mean, think about the racers who have 
come up in that region. Like it just specifically at those two tracks, Beach Bend and, and Music City. Like I don't know that that region can necessarily claim Scotty and Edmund, right? Like they 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 came from North Texas, but they moved there and, and dominated. And then you've got the the Labuses, the Jason Lynches, the Todd Sensonies, Jeremy Jensen, Mike Fuquay, Leon Roberts, and the Gerald family, right? Brandon, Jeffrey, uh Tyler. Greg Kaufman, Clayton Clark, Kelt Loudon, like the list goes on and on of the prolific names that came from that region. And do all of those names like become synonymous with our sport without Dallas's contributions? Perhaps, perhaps some, right? Almost certainly not all. Like I just feel like Dallas Jones' impact has been and will continue to be felt for years to come personally as any of you hashtag loyal listeners know like i've always had a soft spot for beach bend in my heart like it's my favorite racetrack period part of that's the scenery part of that is the 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 feel the history i just love i love old tracks that have been kept up over time that are well taken care of like i've always just liked that vibe and i think a big part of why i love that place is to be completely honest it's dallas jones and the jones family he established a culture there, obviously built on hard work, built on treating people the way that he would want to be treated, the way that you or I would want to be treated. I'm one of I'm one of many that uh, that's going to miss Dallas Jones dearly. So uh, rest in peace, Dallas. Um, our thoughts are obviously with the Jones family in in this time of uh, of grieving. Yeah, Luke, very well said, start to finish, um, uh, an absolute legend in our sport, uh, a man who did it his way, and and everybody that was under his umbrella did it his way, and I didn't go to Bowling Green a lot, you know, up until about 2010, I was a, exclusively a bottom bulb racer, and there wasn't a lot of bottom bulb activity there just on, on a scale of big races. Everything was top bulb uh, heavy. So um, I didn't get to go there much prior to 2010 since I've been a few times. And, you know, it's always been the exact same. You knew Dallas was in charge even when his health was starting to fade in his late 70s, early 80s. And everybody knew the end was getting close. Dallas still showed up and Dallas was still in charge. Um, and not one time did I ever hear, yeah, we got to do this the way Dallas said, like it was a bad thing. It was, no, Dallas, this is how Dallas wants it done. This is how we're going to do it. There was a, it's just a man that just commanded respect just because of who he was and what he's done in and for our sport. and. You know, he was one of those guys that would chew on you a little bit, not trying to hurt you, but just, you know, by George, it was needed to be done this way. And it didn't even piss you off. It just, it made you feel like you, you know, you just got scolded by the principal because you know that whatever way Dallas wanted it done, that's the way it needed to be done. And if you did something different than that, you felt like you'd just done wrong. So, um, you know, certainly thoughts and prayers out to to it his family, the, the thousands of racers that he's touched, his friends, and all of the people that have just supported his efforts over the last few decades and gotten used to, 
to shaking Dallas's hand and, and seeing him at the facility. I'm sure it will never be the same without Dallas, uh, but his legacy will, uh, will live on as one of greatness and just a, a guy that, you know, did tremendous, tremendous things for this sport and so many people within it. Um, just a legend is lost. And, you know, my only real Dallas story is uh, a couple of years ago, I showed up to the fall ten tuck and the crowd was absolutely massive. I mean, massive. I think it was the race they had that neared 700 entries when it was all said and done. And uh, I got in there a day later than most, and I, I was delivering a, a stacker trailer that I'd sold to a gentleman, was meeting me there, and I didn't want to get lost out in the crowd or make it difficult for him to pick it up. So I, I pulled off kind of off to the side in the infield, um, you know, that, that gate that just turns that immediately in the infield there, and I pulled off to the side near the wall. I went and found someone, an official, and I said, hey, I'm delivering this trailer. Gentleman's going to pick it up first thing in the morning. I'm just wondering, can I leave it right there for him to scoop it up? It won't be in the way. He'll be gone before time trials ever start. And the guy said, I don't think it'll be a problem, but you need to go ask Dallas. So I, I was like, oh, boy, you know, this, this might not go well. So I went and found Dallas, and I told him, what I, what, I, what I had going on. And he said, son, that's not a problem. He said, if, if he's going to have it and be gone before racing in the morning, you leave it right there. And if anybody gets on you about it, you tell them Dallas said it's okay. And he said, what's your name? You know, and I'm, I'm nobody in the sport, but I've, I've gotten used to, to people knowing who I am. But, you know, Dallas said, what's your name? And I said, my name's Jared Pennington. He said, Jerry Penton? I said, yes, sir. That's close <laughs> enough. And he said, good enough, Jerry. You tell them if anybody says anything, you tell them Dallas said you could leave it right there. And if they got a problem with it, they can come see me. <laughs> and uh, obviously nobody said anything and all went well. But, you know, he, he just was that kind of guy. He was in charge. But the main reason Dallas was in charge was because he earned it. And the next best reason was because he needed to be in charge because whatever Dallas said was the right thing to say. So a legend gone and, uh, and certainly will be missed greatly in our sport. I, uh, I can't remember an instance where I ever felt like I was, uh, I got like a scolding from, from Dallas Jones, but I think I would have just taken it like an honor, right? Like he cared enough. Of, he thought enough about me to tell me what I'd done wrong. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I agree. So now I, and to be clear, like that facility and the culture established there is in really good hands with, with Brock and the staff that they've got around him. But obviously Dallas Jones would be dearly missed. Um, all right, Jed, I don't, there's no good way to transition from that, but, but let's move forward. We've got there was two NHRA Lucas Oil Series races out in Division 7 in Phoenix over the weekend. So it's double the events that, that happened in Bellrose. But I think we got to start in Bellrose. I think that was the biggest story of the weekend from one Monty Joe Bogan Jr., Big Jed. Monty Joe won not one, but two categories in Bellrose. He's back. Monty's back. <laughs> Monty Bogan who who made the commitment in the off season to uh, to pursue the 
competition eliminator championship. And more specifically, I think the, the roof tech division four bonus, that's the hundred thousand dollars, right. Driving for, uh, Tim Freeman and Lee Sharp in a H super modified Camaro. He he's made good on promise so far, right. Goes to, uh, goes to Bell Rose for the opener, wins the event in comp, wins the event in super stock as well. Um, obviously the comp win is more notable simply because they're racing for a hundred thousand dollars as part of that roof tech bonus to win the, uh, division four championship. Um, Monty Joe defeated Jeff Taylor in the final pretty prolific competition eliminator final. There's a lot of world championships floating around in that final round. Uh, and, and two guys that I think obviously are there for the same reason. And you would assume will continue to mix it up throughout the year and battle, along with several others for that uh, for that $100,000 bonus in the Division Four championship. Um, Monty Joe got, obviously got a very fast car, but got through it clean from the 11, quali- 11 qualifying spot. Didn't take any index along the way. Took a small CIC hit, but no permanent. Um, and just as a side note, the round that he took a little bit of CIC, it was third round, it was against a red light. And you go, Monty, what are you doing? It's against a red light. My man went 894, Jed at 129 mile an hour to still be 52 under how fast can that thing go what is that luke uh that mile an hour is 10 30 maybe yeah maybe i mean 890 should 20 should tickle 150 minimum yeah yeah so wow <laughs> Monte joe got a little something there got a little something <laughs> there and just <clears throat> I got to say, just from being there, what Roger Brogdon has done, man, comp in Division 4 is awesome. Can I say, comp in Division 4 is badass, Jed. Like, I, I dig you competition eliminator in general, but I think there was 27 comp cars on the ground in Bellrose, which is a lot for comp anywhere. And I feel like 24 of them could win the, just about any race, like very competitive field, very fast field, lots of big name drivers, like really cool stuff. And, and I do think it's notable too, for as strong and as deep and as fast as that field was, there were two notable missing figures. And I think if you come into the season 2023 and just try to predict like the odds on favorites to win the competition eliminator championship. I think it's Bruno Massel, who has obviously renewed a commitment to chase the title again this year. He's got to be one of the favorites. And Greg Camplain, who flirted with the championship a year ago. That's the, basically the one thing that Camplain hasn't accomplished in his storied career in competition eliminator. Like if I had to single out two, it's those two. They weren't in Belrose. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Like we talked about this a year ago. You've got the division four thing with the massive purses uh, attached to it. And the vast majority of competitive competition eliminary cars will be there racing for that. And someone will be crowned champion. And a lot of people, the way that that pays back are going to leave with a whole lot of money at season's end. Right. But the, the bloodbath that that will become does not necessarily lend itself to a national champion. I think you will have a $100,000 Division Four champion and you will have a separate national champion because it, it will not be easy to accumulate massive point scores in Division Four. And I think ultimately that's the theory behind 
Bruno Massa, which Bruno's is probably more of a scheduling thing than anything, if we're going to be completely honest. Like Bruno getting to the minimum races with all that he's got going on is probably a struggle and it's probably not conducive to being at every division four race. Champlain has chased that thing in the past. He wasn't at Bell Rose. That doesn't mean that he won't be at the rest of them. But I think if the goal is to check that off, ultimately win that national championship, I don't know that division four is the place to do it. Yeah, Luke, uh, you can definitely see some permanent CIC coming from uh, this Division Four chase. And certainly when there's $100,000 on the line for the overall champion, uh, there's, you know, I think at some point we'll probably find out what Monty Joe can run. <laughs> Somebody's going to force him to, to let's see what it's got. And, you know, while Bruno probably is more of a scheduling issue or conflict, um, at the same time, it would not be in his best interest to to go jump off in the middle of that, especially in race one, um, when he can accomplish the goal uh, a different path. So, well, it's um, just I, a it, it's a different it's a like I the question becomes what are your priorities? It's a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, uh, but you know, again, hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but. It's not going to change the lives of a whole lot of comp racers. Good point. Uh, at least seemingly, you know, um, those guys have one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars race cars, and they're pulling it with uh, four and five hundred thousand dollars worth of rig. So, um, you know, one hundred thousand dollars makes them feel good, gives them a little pocket change, and uh, and they can throw it around a little bit and get paid back for some of their investment. But that's not a class, I don't think, where lives are going to change. So. Uh, I can see why somebody would choose not to put all of their eggs in that proverbial basket. Um, but all kudos, as you mentioned, goes to Roger Brogdon. What he and, and Roof Tech and, and their supporters have uh, created, I mean, comp is relevant. It is absolutely relevant. It's exciting. Does Monty Joe Bogan go to Bell Rose and drive for someone? Hell if that no. hundred thousand is not on the line. So, right. you know, look what it's doing and look what it's done. You know, I know uh, our buddy Brad Plourd was there competing and I think it's uh, getting people back in racing and it's certainly making it exciting to talk about, uh, you know, comp eliminators, a, a difficult class to understand. A lot of people don't understand it, but I'll promise you in 2023, more people will be interested and understand it than they were in 2019, 20 and, and the years leading up to this. It's, I think it's getting more people interested. Is that Roger's full intent? No, but is it a side effect that he had hoped would happen? Absolutely. So it, it's getting people out, getting people racing more and certainly bringing in the talent, which is what Roger probably intended to do, and it's working. So kudos to Roger Brogdon and, and the team around Roof Tech that, uh, that has created all. 100%. And to your point, Jed, at the event, that there was no one on the facility, on the premises that wasn't keeping tabs of what was going on in Comp Eliminator. Like it was the main attraction. Yeah. It was very, very cool. Um, sure. Let's switch gears a little bit to, to Monty's Superstock performance. He defeated Speedy Emmons in the final round to win the Superstock category. 
he had also obviously run at Orlando at the Division II opener. Monty Joe made it to the quarterfinals. So two very strong performances thus far, uh, albeit overshadowed at least by one round by one Kevin Helms. Helms, if you remember, won the uh, Superstock contest at Orlando. He advanced to the semifinals at Melrose. So it's very early in the season, but two standout performers. Helms, a multi-time NHRA champion. Bogan, a multi-time IHRA world champion, putting up strong, strong showings here in the early going. And that brings me, Big Jed, to a trivia time, a Monty Joe special for you. Oh, boy. Monty Joe Bogan is a four-time IHRA world champion, having accomplished that feat twice in stock eliminator, once in super stock, once in top stock. Those four IHRA world championships, at least by the list that I'm looking at, which admittedly might be a couple years outdated, but I think is accurate. Those four world titles place him fourth on the all-time list in IHRA of sportsman world champions. That list is headed obviously by Anthony Bertozzi. Anthony Bertozzi with no less than 17 IHRA World Championships. Second place, how about Mike Boyles? Eight IHRA World Titles. And one Dennis Mitchell. Third place, six IHRA World Titles. And then there is a log jam. There are, Monty Joe Bogan is tied with one, two, three, four, five additional competitors with four IHRA World Championships. This isn't ungettable. It'd be ungettable to get all five, but there are some very familiar names. Can you name any other IHRA, any other competitors who have amassed four IHRA World Championships like one, Monty Bogan Jr.? Uh, immediately, Scott Stillings comes to mind. Ding. All right. Very good. You're off to a, you're off to a, a great start. Yes. Stillings, I believe, got three of those back to back to back, if I'm not mistaken, in the 890 category, and then added one yeah. in Superstock just in the more re- in more recent years. So that's one. Okay. Um, I feel like one of the Cummings boys has probably done it. Not on the list I'm seeing here. I know Slate won one. I know Britt won at least one, but I don't think they've amassed. They haven't amassed four. How about that? Okay. Um... Who else? Man, I mean, I really should be better at this, but I did get one right. And that was the, the question was, can I name any of the, the others? So, I feel like uh, you get credit. If anybody's keeping one. score at home, one's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm out of guesses. <laughs> out of guesses? All right. All right. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to be upset with yourself when I rattle off some of these names. Okay. I thought you'd go Alabama and name David Rampey and you'd be close. Ram- Rambo got three IHRA World Championships, not four. The racers that have four, along with Monty Joe Bogan. Wait a minute. Oh. Is there a racer from Alabama that is on this list? Is there a racer from Alabama that is on this? Ah, I can neither confirm nor deny. No, no. Is no. Ed Chandler on the list? Ed Chandler is not on the list. Okay. All right. Now I'm out of guesses then. Okay. Monty Joe Bogan Jr., Scotty Stillings, Scott Duggins. Oh, man. Car racing engine himself. And if I'm not mistaken, Duggins won. I know he won all four championships in the quick rod category. That's the 890 category. And I believe that he won all four championships in the same chassis, like nearly 15 years apart. 
Like the last one was way separated from the first three. And because I remember being at that banquet for whatever reason. And the joke was that Scott was going to hang that chassis from the rafters at Paw Racing Engines. And he may have done it for all I know. Scott Duggins. How about Big Daddy Dave Elrod? Oh, my gosh. IHRA World Champion. How about Glenn Ferguson Jr.? Oh, man. Glenn dominated. Yes. Yes. I remember him getting two in one year, winning 990 and 1090. Oh, man. And... A guy by the name of Gene Fulton. Ever heard that name? Oh, wow. I never would have guessed that one. Me neither. Trivia time. That was a good one. That was a good one. There was a oh, really that was one. good trivia. IHRA trivia. Had to dust that one off a little bit. I like yeah, it. Yeah, digging back in the archives. All right. Uh, we'll stay on the NHRA divisional trail. And big weekend for a couple of big name racers out west. How about former NHRA world champion Steve Williams, who started his season with a win in Super Comp at race one in Phoenix, got that win over Travis Theobald, and then backed it up two days later with a runner-up in the 990 category, runner-up in Super Gas in race two to Val Torres Sr. Torres, another uh, familiar name on the West Coast, and he had a big weekend as well. In addition to his Super Gas win in race two, Val Torres Sr. did his best Monty Joe Bogan Jr. impression. Just came up one round short. Winner in Super Gas, runner-up in Super Comp was Val Torres Sr. Runner-up to Toby Payne. Toby, that is the uh, son of Jay and Shelly Payne, earned his first NHRA Lucas Oil Series win in the Super Comp score and did it in impressive fashion, Big Jed. Toby's box score, he missed it once. He was 32 in the semis. Other than that, his worst light was 16. He was double O four consecutive rounds to lead things off. He was 12 once. T Payne was putting on a show. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that's, uh, you know, obviously the miss, there's not what he was trying to be, but that's what you, if you could go into the race and say, this is the, the range I want to live in, that's it. And to go out and accomplish that, certainly six out of the seven rounds is, uh, is impressive. And obviously, uh, you know, with Val Torres Sr. in the other lane, you you have your hands full, and Toby uh, stuck to uh, to what he had been doing and and accomplished that win over a very difficult opponent in the other lane. But what about Val? You know, it's just every year. Yeah. And Val's no no puppy. I mean, Val's been around a while. He's been around a while. He's been doing this a long time. Still out there competing going to two finals, getting a win and a runner-up, off to a great start. Steve Williams off to a great start. But easily, the, the Theobald uh, competitor is is the best-looking of the group. You know, the Theobalds look good. So, Val's a good-looking guy, but Travis definitely uh, performing at the same level that he looks. But, Luke, it, it just seems like over and over and over, year after year, um, Val – Steve Williams, those guys always in the hunt, um, getting an opportunity to compete for for championships out there. And then, you know, the guy that that we talked about last year, I know you was about to talk about this, but you talk about the guy last year that we thought it was over. And he's off to a great start. Two runner-up finishes in Phoenix for Brad Burton, bad Brad, um, coming back after Last year's letdown, you know, he was in command of the stock world championship. And obviously it wasn't 
like super poor performance by him. Just some people got hot and Cooter got real hot and charged his way to the to the championship. But bad Brad Luke, two runner up finishes. I'm sure he's disappointed in those because of not getting the win, but that is a super good start for him in the stock category. A hundred percent. That's the, that's the event last season where Brad ran the table in stock. That's, that's when I famously proclaimed it's over, right? Uh, yeah. And something about that facility, definitely agreeing with Brad Burton. And, and as a quick aside um, on the Toby Payne victory, this was kind of a cool footnote. Speaking of that facility, agreeing with people or agreeing with families, it was Toby's first NHRA uh, event win in Phoenix, which was also the site of his sister Madison's first NHRA Wally and his father Jay's first NHRA Wally. Wow. Something about Phoenix and the Payne family. Um, yeah, Brad Burton <clears throat> probably finished, probably absolutely sick right now, coming in second, but that's not going to last long. Like Burton's going to win plenty of races. Uh, double runner up on the weekend. Worth noting, uh, back to your, your, your Theobald family, and they are a good looking bunch. I, I do have to say, Big Jed, Val Sr. just has that distinguished, like, good looking dude yeah. vibe to him. And if we're just going off of like pretty, Val Jr. probably gives the Theobalds a run for his bit of money. And that's a good looking man. Yeah, the Theobalds just have probably a little more size on Val. And I think that, you know, that the bigger you are, I think the prettier you can be because there's just more of you. <laughs> so Val, Val Jr. definitely is, is a good looking guy. And, and Val Sr. has aged extremely well, but nobody can touch the Theobalds. I mean, my, my, my bromance for those guys has, has been over discussed on the podcast. And I apologize for that. But those boys just look good. I mean, do they you? really do. Take real good care of themselves. They must work out. Do you? Do you apologize for that? Not really. Okay. <laughs> a good weekend for the good-looking bunch. Theobald family, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Travis, runner-up in uh, in race one to Steve Williams. His brother, Parker, winner in stock in race one over Brad Burton. And super stock, Burton's runner-up. To a guy by the name of Jody Lang, Big Jed. I thought this was interesting. I, I, I thought about doing some research and then I got a little bit into it and was like, I don't want to do this. But the, what catalyzed the, the thought was Justin Lamb's victory, which we'll get to momentarily. He won stock in race two at Phoenix. This is 31st NHRA Lucas Oil Series event victory. And that seems like a ton, especially for a guy that Justin's, what, in his mid-30s? When 31 of them things, pretty impressive. And I just thought... Yeah. I wonder how many like active racers have won more than 31 divisional events. That seems like a bunch. And literally the first result that I clicked on on Drag Race Central in preparation for this podcast was Superstock in race one. And I see Jody Lang wins. And in the footnote, that is 59 NHRA Lucas Oil Series divisional wins for Jody Lang. Wow. 59 times he has hosted that baby Wally at the end of a divisional event. That is an impressive number. Yeah, it is, Luke. I don't know how many, you know, finals, let alone that you have to go to, to get 59 wins. And then how many events did you compete in? But, you know, Jody, I, I know Jody's no spring chicken, been doing this a while, but my goodness, 59 divisional wins is incredible. That is a fantastic number 
to have by your name when you're talking about any kind of wins, but especially as challenging as divisional wins are. That's a, that's an impressive, impressive number by Jody. So those racers, uh, Bogan, Williams, Torres, Burton, I think it's fair to say were the, the biggest stories of the NHRA weekend. Got a handful of, of quick hitters, Jed, that I'll run through and stop me if anything catches your attention. I think that these are are names that could well have an impact on national points when we look back on this eight months from now. Obviously, it's way too early. Like we're less than 10% of the way into the season. But some big names scoring big early. Competition eliminator out west in Phoenix. Reigning competition eliminator world champion Ryan Pretty. He started off his 2023 season the way that he finished 2022. He won the opener at Phoenix, defeated Joe Mozeris in a final round matchup of a pair of top 10 finishers from last year. And then in race two in competition eliminators had an incredible final between Kevin Carter and the aforementioned Bruno Massel Jr. Carter, you, you, you're, you're good with numbers here, Big Jed. You can do the math on this. It's a little different in comp eliminator, right? Kevin Carter, 70 on the tree, 62 under the index with a zero. Like the way we would normally figure up, that's like a negative 55 package with a zero is that you on board there yeah so okay. i mean i've got them you know uh well go ahead okay however you want to do this bruno in the other lane 22 on the tree 57 under with a two quick math there that's a dead heat <laughs> comp final with a couple of guys going way under the index yeah bruno's 48 quicker on the tree and Carter's 48 quicker on the track, or 48 more under. So, yeah, it's a dead heat, Luke. Much Could better win way. anybody's way. That's why you do this, really. That's a much easier way to explain that than what I was trying to do. That was brilliant. <laughs> Trips it <Thank> finished <laughs> with the win going to Kevin Carter. As a side note, that's now the second time in the last six months that Bruno has lost a tight one. Like, Couple, I think it was a couple thousandths of a second separated him and Brett Spear in the final at the Lucas Oil Nationals in Brainerd a year ago. And I think they both took permanent to do that, right? So Bruno goes real fast twice in six months to come out on the losing side by a couple thousandths. And I think in both instances, I'm actually fairly comfortable in saying that any time that Bruno gets behind, he could have been ahead because like that thing's stupid fast, been stupid fast for a decade, right? So it's... He's probably kicking himself, I think, is is the way to take this. Because if you go that far under, obviously you want to win, right? Just trying to make it tight, trying to preserve index, but got to get there first. Yeah, no doubt. I, you know, I don't know what their indexes were. I'm assuming that Bruno was the faster, uh, the faster they, car. They ended up about, it was nearly heads up, right? I think Bruno was actually getting chased like a 10th, but the thing runs such big speed that yeah. I don't know. It's one of those situations where it'd be really easy to get back. I'll, I'll say it's that. when you got 500s on the tree and you, you can run basically whatever you want to run, you know, you're getting there, but you're trying to protect the index and you want to kill just enough to squeeze in front. And I think Bruno probably killed just a smudge too much, obviously and a triple O finish went the other direction. So probably very frustrated with himself, but uh, that's, that's a really good start when you're you know just chasing the prize that's uh that's he's off to a great start and and something that if you told him prior to the race you you're going to get a runner-up finish he would have he would have took it yeah to your point it's a great foundation for the ultimate prize that obviously bruno is striving for 
stock eliminator, if we take the the three events in total, we just mentioned five-time NHRA world champion Justin Lamb earned a stock eliminator victory in race two in Phoenix. Um, it got the win over a red lighting Kyle Rizzoli. Rizzoli, oh, by the way, also a semifinalist and super stock in that event. Lamb earned his 31st divisional Wally, as I said, at his age. That's an impressive number in and of itself. He also advanced to the quarterfinals in race one. So a strong start in what could be a run to potentially number six for Justin Lamb. Across the country in Belrose, former second place national finisher Parker DeVore got the win in Stock Eliminator over David Patino. Switch over to top dragster, Big Jed, unless you had anything to add to Stock Eliminator. Well, I think it's very impressive that Justin, uh, I don't know how Justin is, but I'm assuming Justin's probably somewhere around that 31, 32, 33 age. Um, So, you know, you've got as many divisional wins almost as you have birthdays. If not, that's very impressive. And I think Uh, it's fair to say they're compounding at a rate greater than the birthdays. Yes, very well said. And, you know, and Justin... I think hasn't given himself a ton of opportunities at divisionals. He's, he's stuck to nationals as a rule, I think for some of his NHRA journey. So, you know, if he just devoted himself to the divisionals, no telling what he could accomplish numbers wise, we talked about Jody Lang having 59, but Justin definitely on a a path that, uh, that is not duplicated that that guy is ultra talented and racking up some serious, serious accolades. And then Luke, uh, Parker DeVore. Parker's my man. Uh, he's big as Sasquatch. He drives a Mopar. I mean, he's a, he's a combination that you just don't want to see in the other lane. That's a big dude driving a Mopar and ain't scared. This guy's very talented, and this is his niche. You know, he's a, he's a bottom bulb racer and has been very successful in bottom bulb. But man, when he got serious about this stock eliminator class, he has done extremely well and and really happy for Parker accomplishing all that he's done so far in the sport with a with a lot left to go off to a great start. Would love to see Parker in the middle of a national championship chase. In the top dragster category specific to Phoenix, some of the biggest names in the sport, because it's some very familiar names, very big names advancing to the final in uh, in top dragster in Phoenix. How about one Bo Butner earns the first top dragster uh, Division 7 victory of the season over Kevin Kleinweber, two very familiar names in that first final, and then two very familiar names in the final of race two as well as reigning super comp world champion Jim Glenn, Decided to dip his toes in the water in top direction. That worked out well. He got a win in race two, defeated one Chad Axford, who was a long way from home out in uh, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and drove to a final round himself as well. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't think anybody wants to see Bo Butner um, dedicate a whole lot of time and energy to any sportsman category. The guy's just super good. He really is. He, he's very capable in any category. We've seen his super gas uh, wins. Now he's out there in top dragster. Um, just a guy that, that can wheel anything. He's obviously committed to pro stock, but as he's doing these things on the side and doing them well, you know, it don't, 
don't be surprised as you as you've listed people that could be in the chase later this year. Don't be surprised if Bo Butner's name is off squarely in the middle of a championship chase. And you know, I don't know what my boy Kevin Kleinweber's uh, schedule is going to look like. I don't think Kevin plans to to do a whole lot of traveling. He seems to he seems to uh, not care to ride around too much doing it. Another talented guy, been a guy that's done this well for decades. So love to see uh, Kevin Kleinweber get his name in the in the light and and do well. But Luke, as you mentioned, Jim Glenn, uh, perennial power in the category, always a factor. Don't know what Chad Axford was doing way out there in Phoenix, but Chad's a talented dude, um, very capable. I, I think he'll probably end up committed to big money bracket racing, and, and he's certainly flat bill promotions putting on races, and he's got some good races on the schedule this year. So his time will be occupied. I'm not sure how committed he will be to, to a points chase, but he did go to Phoenix for something and enter the race. So never really know uh, what will happen with him. I don't want to speak out of turn here, Jed, but my my first instinct would be to say that Bo Butner and Jim Glenn did not roll into Phoenix with intentions of pursuing the top dragster world championship. And that may not have changed after one win. I if if one of them or both of them were to get hot and pursue that, I am in 100 percent for two reasons, Big Jed. The first most obvious I, I, I like Bo and I like Jim, right? I'm, I'm a fan, both. The second is that a year ago, Jeremy Hancock won the top dragster world championship with a with a bracket car. Like, let's be honest. Jim Glenn won that race dialed 740-something. Bo Butner, I think, was dialed 690-something, 70-something. If it comes back-to-back years with a bracket car winning the top dragster world championship, them fast TD guys are going to light the tower on fire. Like it's, and I, I'm just here for the drama. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm sitting here with the popcorn. I am I'm, I'm down. Yeah, most definitely Luke. Uh, that's, you know, that's a category where speed is becoming more and more, um, useful and evident and certainly popular. And for for guys to win this in anything with a seven on it is is not what they want to see. And certainly, you know, a 690 to them is exactly the same. Most of these guys are trying to slow them down to run 615 where they're safe in the zone. And and for people to to accomplish wins in the, the 690 to 750 range is not something that'll be very popular among the uh, the crowd there in top dragster. But, you know, Bo, I think, has the means to run whatever Bo feels like he needs to run. So I, I think if he were to get serious and his, his home division uh, is fast and, you know, if he's going to run races around home, then he's going to have to, he's going to have to step on it a little bit. So, wouldn't surprise me if we don't see Bo out there in a, a 640 car at some point just to just to make sure he's solidly in the show if he if he decides to chase the championship. It also speaks to that just oh, we've talked about this before, but it's been a couple of years, like just the bizarre nature of this national category 
top dragster, and top sportsman for that matter, when it's contested in Division 6 and 7, they just take 16 more cars than everywhere else. They add an extra round. So obviously the field's not as fast, and you can just go win more rounds and earn more points. Like How that is not universal across the seven divisions still just defies common sense, in my opinion, but it is what it is. And Bo Butner and Jim Glenn, assuming that they were to continue on and, and pursue a national championship, obviously would be taking advantage of that extra round and the extra 10 points that come along with it. Keeping well, Luke Bo will be out West for those races. So, yeah, you know, at, and, I don't I haven't looked. You might've looked at, he might be claiming division seven. Who knows? May very well be. May very well be. And has a car that will have no trouble qualifying in division seven. <laughs> Doesn't look like it. Without change. Continuing the trend of uh, not so fast top dragsters earning the gold in Belrose. Uh, D- longtime Division Four standout David Bills got the win in top dragster. That's another mid seven second TD car. Uh, got the win over Wayne Landry. Landry, a, a top 10 finisher a year ago. And on the surface, David Bills box score, like, I guess it doesn't knock your socks off, right? He was never just nasty on the tree, but super solid. He's 11 in the final. That was his best. His worst was 20. That's a 9,000th window over five rounds last time I checked. Pretty nice win for one David Bills. Big Jed, other notable performances just kind of spread out over the weekend of those three NHRA points meets. Wyatt Wagner, who was in contention for the uh, Superstock National Championship in 2022, also recently graced the cover of National Dragster with a great write-up on young Wyatt and his family. He kicked off his uh, his 2023 season in style with a Superstock victory in race two at Phoenix. Got the win over Mike Cotton. Former back-to-back Super Comp world champion, Big Jed, my man Christopher Dodd. He took runner-up honors in Belrose to Mark Powers in the Super Comp category. Christopher turned it one thou red in the final. And that just kind of ta- capped off a very typical Christopher Dodd box score. Like we have talked about this before. We're a big fan of Christopher Dodd, not just for the fact that he wins, but the way that he goes about it. Christopher Dodd turned it loose 16 in round one. His worst lamp the rest of the way, 11. Three consecutive lights that weren't double O, Big Jed. Five or better, three consecutive rounds going into the final where he lit it 1,000 pink. I, I hate that he went red. Although all, all kudos certainly to Mark Powers. Hate that hate that Christopher went red, but love the fact that coming off of back to back to back low double O's, he turns it a thou red, just complete fearlessness. And that's obviously what got him to where he is, two-time NHR world champion. Yeah, no doubt, Luke. Uh, you know, obviously his talent is, has been on display now for a few years and and he has shown us what he's capable of, even has performed well when he's dabbled a little in the bracket racing and, and we know how tough and tight those packages are. But that's ultra confident when you've been 005 like that, uh, you know, or, or better in three consecutive runs, your window's tight, you roll up there and decide... I like where I'm at. I, I don't imagine he changed much, if any, and unfortunately got it one thou pink there in the final. But I love the the confidence and and the willingness to go up there and stay aggressive. You're in the final round. You know your opponents perform well to get there, and you don't want to leave anything on the table. So while that uh, that stinks for Christopher to to come up one thou red in the final, it's still, you know. It says a lot about him and his level of aggression and confidence when he rolls to the starting line 
uh, with those results that he had leading up to that. And, you know, that ultimately is what has created those championships for him. And I like him staying true to his standard approach. When you think about unbridled aggression on the starting line and the talent to back it up time after time after time, like who's the first name that comes to mind? Oh, I mean, you know, to me, it would be uh, one of the Williams boys, um, Gary or Troy, but Troy to me is a little more aggressive than, than Gary. He's Troy will turn it to a three thou red a lot, but he ain't scared. He, he will set the box tight and stay aggressive. That's the first name that came to mind for me as well, along with Anthony Bertozzi. Anthony will set up nothing and not think twice about it. I've told my Anthony story on this, right? <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I've probably heard it, but I'm up for it again. See, this, I, I tell this all the time. That's the problem with the podcast. And I talk too much in so many areas of life. Like I can't keep track of what stories I've told where. But if you've heard this, listeners, I apologize my father and I went to Rockingham, North Carolina for a race that they used to call the Millennium Million. I think it only happened two or three times, Jed. Really one of my first times to venture out on the on the quote unquote big stage. This is probably 98, 99, something like that. And I'd lost early in the million. And Anthony is just going rounds and, and ringing up just ridiculous numbers. We're going into the semis of the million, the main event. I don't remember the order, but Anthony Bertozzi had been in four consecutive rounds, had been perfect twice and 001 twice. Back then it was 501. It was 500 twice and 501 twice, right? In some order. And I don't think anything of it. I just assume he's approaching this just like I would, right? He comes up perfect. He puts 5,000 in. By God, it comes up perfect again. He puts another... 5,000 in, he's won. Oh my God, I put another 5,000 in, I'm one again, right? And I'm sitting, I speak of the devil, I, I'm sitting in Troy Williams, at the door of Troy Williams Jr.'s trailer, talking to Troy, and Anthony and Peter Biondo are parked across from him. There's a trailer between us, so I can't see them, but I can hear them. And I can hear an animated Peter Biondo just start yelling at Anthony, one thou, one thou, put a thou in just for me. You ain't touched it in four rounds. Put a thousand, one thousand. It's not going to kick one thousand. And I'm like, they can't be serious. He ain't moved the box in four. And he's been perfect, perfect <laughs> one, one. And so I kind of stand up. They got my attention now, right? And I can clear his day like it was yesterday. Remember Anthony's response, just cool, calm, Anthony Bertozzi, the way we know him, the way we love him. I couldn't see him, but I just picture him turning around to Pete. And I heard the words. And he said, Pete, it's the million. I'm going to be perfect and I'm going to win. And my impression was that he didn't touch the box. And in that semifinal round, he was one thou red. That's the aggressiveness I'm talking about. That's what Christopher Dodd inspires. And I just, it don't always work out. Don't get me wrong, but I am here for it. I am a fan. Love it. Great story. That's the first time, if you've told it before, that's the first time you told it live. So, it was there good. You go. There you go. Good timing. We talked about uh, dual finalists and, and we left one out. Big Jed, Richard Okerman, 
back-to-back runner-up in Phoenix in the top sportsman category, runner-up in both events there, lost to Jeff Connolly in race one, lost to Dean Hall in race two. And one quick note from Super Street Big Jed, since it is on some level, we're going to crown a Super Street world champion this year. How about in debt indeed? Lamar <laughs> Stevenson driving to victory in Belrose in a tidal weight bout of like all-time Super Street racers. Lamar Stevenson gets the win over Chucky Weir. Stevenson, early front runner in this quote unquote world championship battle in Super Street. Not only did he win in Belrose, he was a quarter finalist in Orlando. It's early, but in debt indeed leading the charge. Where's Lamar from, Luke? I'm not mistaken. Lamar resides in the great state of Alabama. Yeah, he do. Yeah, he do. That's my man, Lamar. Yeah, Lamar, obviously a, a staple in super street racing way before there was ever any talk about any kind of championship. So if anybody, Luke, deserves to win the, the national championship or the, the kind of national championship in super street, it's Lamar Stevenson. This guy's dedicated uh, a ton of time and energy into that category when you know, way back when it didn't mean anything to anybody, but the guys racing it now, there's an opportunity for uh, a, a championship to be recognized. If anybody deserves that, it's Lamar Stevenson and Chucky Weir. I know a lot of people might not recognize that recognize that name. Chucky, a, a talented bracket racer out of Texas, a guy that's got cool equipment. I don't know if he was in his Chevy two wagon or not. He but was. If he was. That's extra cool because that thing is bad news. It is an awesome ride. Chucky Weir is a good dude, a good racer. So good to see him uh, get an opportunity and go to a final as well. And uh, But in, in all seriousness, I'm pulling for Lamar. I know John Rollins got off to a good start in Super Street in, uh, in Orlando, but I'm, I'm pulling for Lamar to get this championship when it's all said and done. Fair enough. So we were NHRA heavy on this show, Big Jed. When we reconvene a week from now, and again, for our live audience, we'll be here again, six o'clock central time next Tuesday. Next week, I assume, Big Jed, unless weather plays a huge role, we will be big dollar bracket race heavy, right? We do have the baby gators. We'll touch on that. But big dollar bracket racing from each end of the country coming up this weekend. Yeah, Luke, uh, obviously the, uh, the schedule is fixing to start getting ramped up and no better way to do that than the top bulb 150 at Gulfport, uh, Galen Rollison, Britt Cummings, Tommy Castaneda, and the crew at Gulfport Dragway with one of their staple events. The top bulb 150 is a unique event where racers enter and they take 150 racers and let them enter the program. Everybody that enters gets a second entry. So there will be 300 entries total in the program. And Galen's got a deal where he's got uh, a buyback. And if you have to buy back with both entries, your second one gets a little break on it. Just a racer friendly deal really is. Gulfport's a great facility. Those guys are doing wonderful things down there. And uh, they're really fixing the place up nice and excited for them. And uh, if you haven't been to Gulfport in a while and you're part of the Top Bulb 150, you're going to love what you're seeing down there. So good luck to everybody that makes their way to Gulfport. The Southwest Showdown, Luke, uh, Chris Forsyth and, and his staff are going to be in Tucson. This race has become extremely popular 
over on the West Coast. It is a race that uh, draws some racers from well east of there. That uh, that says a lot about uh, the the status of the Southwest Showdown when the racers from way east. I mean, not just barely east, but way east. I know Texas and beyond will have some racers that travel out there for an opportunity to win the Southwest Showdown. This is the race last year, if I'm if I remember correctly, that uh, that there was a bet about Jeff Sarah and whether or not a West Coaster would win the main event. And and I think Jake Hodge took Jeff Sarah against the field, if I remember correctly. And that Jeff was Sarah Forsyth's other race in Bakersfield. Oh, yeah, same, other race? Okay. same series, same series. So Sarah won him the bet. So you, you'll probably get some East Coast talent that goes out there and West Coasters. I'm getting a little flack for picking you guys to win the OG Million in St. Louis. Uh, people are kind of nipping at me just a little bit, like I was crazy for thinking that. It's so here's your opportunity, take, by the way. Yes, here's your opportunity <laughs> to stand up and defend not only the West Coast pride, but your territory. So Southwest Showdown, Chris Forsyth, he does a wonderful job. Everybody at Tucson is going to have an awesome time. And we're looking forward to talking about the results of these two events next week, along with the very popular Baby Gators. And, uh, and they are already are lined up for the Baby Gators. I've, I've been seeing some reports from Gainesville where uh, the, the crowd looks like it's going to be really good. They were getting there early and often. So we're going to have a lot of good racing to talk about next week on the program, Luke. Absolutely. I think that's all we got for today, though. Is that it? Is that the show? That wraps us up. We are done, and we certainly appreciate everybody tuning in and watching us. Um, not sure how everybody's really loving the live thing. Um, we get uh, we Andy Klosky, by the way. Andy Klosky is on uh, online. He said West Coast for the win. So I'm pulling for some West Coasters, too, Andy. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Didn't get a whole lot of chatter online this week but um you know that's uh that's it's a little bit different for us this live thing and um that's something we love we love to interact with you live that's kind of part of the reason for this so by all means next week when we're talking more bracket racing and, and the things that a lot of our listeners are more in tune with certainly want to get some of your feedback and chatter next week and let's uh, let's see what that brings to the table um if you want to talk about what you heard on this show any show prior or what you think you'd like to hear on a future show, well, you can do that right there at the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. You can post it right here on the post where the, the show is, or you can send a private message and producer Mark will snag that sucker right up and tell us what's going on, what you had to say. Luke, you got some shouts here on the live show? Do I have some shouts? Yeah, you do. Come on, Big Jed. Shouts <laughs> to... Peter Biondo, shouts to my attempt at Peter Biondo's accent. Shouts <laughs> to Gene Fulton, Big Jed. That's got to be the first Gene Fulton reference here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Shouts to In Debt Indeed and the entire state of Alabama. Shouts to Yeah, He Do. Shouts to Jerry Fenton. <laughs> shouts to the Theobald family and the Torres family. We love you guys. And you're good looking. It's not why we love you, but you are. It don't hurt. <laughs> uh shouts to those of you again online mark yeager said uh, live is cool keep it going so thank you mark we appreciate that uh thank you guys for tuning in thank you for chatting with us if you like to tweet and we love to tweet 
Luke and I are both active on the Twitter. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Tag us, add us, whatever you do on Twitter. We love to interact with you there, too. Make sure you catch up to us. And again, got some bracket racing coming your way this week. And we can't wait to talk to you about all of the great sportsman drag racing on next week's show. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.